From Washington, this is the HPS Macrocast with Hamilton Place Strategies and Markets Policy Partners. Good morning. It's Friday, December 10th. This is Tony Fratto at Hamilton uh, Place Strategies. John Fagan, Brendan Walsh from Markets Policy Partners with us. Um, it's a big CPI day today, guys. I think it was probably like, you know, it almost had a uh, jobs day feel to it uh, with the, the anticipation for this number. I think probably as closely watched a CPI number as I can remember. Uh, and, you know, people looking for uh, it to, uh, at least hit the uh, you know the uh, the expect you know, market expectations number of six point seven percent, which would make it the fastest inflation in forty years since the malaise days of the early eighties. And um, the surprising thing I think is that the number came in pretty much spot on as expected, and market seems to like that. I think we, you know, be, not being surprised is a really good thing, don't you think? Yeah, I'm a little interested in the the market reaction. I, I both markets, but equity is taking it well. But what do you think, John? Yeah, I mean, it was it's pretty clear when you see. I mean, when you see something like this, and the number is essentially right on the money, maybe a little bit hotter than expectations, and the market rallies, and the bond market is placid. It's a pretty, yeah. it's a pretty, it's pretty consistent with the assumption that everybody was bracing for a really awful number. And uh, the the consensus expectations that economists put forward were uh, being marked up mentally, so to speak, by all the traders on the street, and everybody was uh, was was in a defensive crouch. And when this kind of number comes and uh, and and doesn't necessarily surprise all that significantly on the upside, there's a sense of relief. And and really, that's I think what we're seeing in markets. We saw S and P five hundred futures jump. Uh, the bond market really didn't do much of anything. Uh, look, futures markets didn't significantly uh, change the outlook for uh, anticipated Fed rate action next year and so forth. So uh, about as you know, uh, everybody would have liked a downside surprise that would have probably had an even bigger reaction. But uh, but this is you know good enough for now. Yeah. And also, th- this measurement was taken before uh, oil prices and, and gas prices at the pump uh, started to roll over. So really good point. People are factoring that in for next month's um, for the December CPI print. Yeah, yeah the, the headline is really about goods. The big differential is the goods and energy inflation components. Those are not everything is everything's up a little bit, but those are the big uh, the big swing factor since last year. And certainly when you look at energy prices, the market-based gauges of inflation expectations, tips, break-evens, fives and tens are what people usually look at there. Uh, those are down pretty significantly from the mid-November highs. And those track oil prices. Oil prices at one point were down like 20% off the highs. And uh, and so, you know, it's they've bounced back a little bit here, but, you know, it's uh, the, the Fed... The Fed kind of turned hawkish, and a lot of traders will say, "You know, <laughs> you 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 turned hawkish a week after the peak of uh, of inflation concerns." But you know, it's a uh, it timing timing's tough, and yeah. uh, and and there's still a lot of uh, you know there there are a lot of decisions still to be made, and and a lot of uncertainty around. Uh, the other around. interesting part of this, you know, you can break it down by its the the components that that went up or down the most, and the the ones that have been really. Um, up a lot recently, um, you know, like our foods and especially uh, used cars and trucks, new cars and trucks, um, and then also the fuel. 
before we had a lot of components that were up like 10, 15% on a monthly basis. This right. month, uh, the, the highest contributors were in the, the, the one to two to 3% range, which is much more normal. So I think that is a good sign that the things that were so out of whack, um, especially because of supply constraints, are, are moderating now. The, the one issue that the Fed will have going forward is the shelter component, which um, that includes, you know, your, your house or your, your, your rental. Um, that is accelerating. And we do it a little quirky way. So we don't, we don't measure it how much your house is worth. We measure it how much you could rent your house for. Hmm. So what happened was, we're all aware, everyone moved to Montana and, you know, the price of Manhattan properties plummeted. Uh, on the rental side. Well, people are returning to the cities, uh, you know, pretty quickly. And uh, especially Manhattan rental prices are spiking. So that is starting to come into the CPI. For the CPI, it's a big issue, especially core CPI. It's 40% of the, the core CPI. The, the PCE actually uses the same measurement from the BLS, but they weight it uh, less. So it's it's about 20%. So, well, that's not like having a used car price be up 20%. Yeah. It, it is a sticky measurement that if you're in, so this month, shelter was a 0.5. If, if you just kind of had a normal distribution of, if you went back to what prices were like in 2018, say, and you had a shelter component of 0.5, you're looking at you know 3% core inflation because that is such a large component of it. So while it's not something to freak out about, like we're going to stay here at 7% CPI, it, it is a sticky component that will make it harder for the Fed to come down to its preferred range. And, and now the transitory has been junked by, uh, by the transitory yeah. moniker uh, characterization. And add, a, add a Capitol Hill testimony. Which, which yeah, it was a nothing. strange venue to, to, to spring it on everybody, particularly right after it was so close on the heels of the November meeting. Uh, and, you know, I think that there's this, the, the world will look a lot different when the CPI headline numbers peak out and, right. uh, and start yeah, to come the down. year over year base effects right. roll off. Exactly. If, right. if you look at any statistical metric of, uh, you know, expectations of CPI coming forward, like they're coming down and uh, it's going to be really hard to have a, you know, to, to generate these kind of, these kind of figures Go on a going forward basis, just you know, on the base effect alone, uh, the Fed's the, the at the last you know Fed the Fed meeting when we got the projections, they were still you know coming around like two two and a half percent inflation in twenty twenty two. They're very likely to mark that up, but at the same time, the Fed doesn't necessarily have to stick the landing like next you know by next June. It doesn't have to be like at two or two two and a half percent as long as it's coming in the direction that they want it to go and they can credibly draw a dotted line to, you know, a two and a half percent, a 2% you know, target over the coming year, then they're, they're, the world's going to look a whole lot different when that happens, I think. And uh, yeah, I, I think you're, I think you're exactly right, John, the, 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 um, the trajectory, you know, if I, I don't know if this is the, you know, I don't know if this is the peak and we'll see what December looks like. There, there are really good reasons to think that, um, just anecdotally that, you, you know, you could see, uh, you could make the case that this is a peak, notwithstanding, uh, what's happening with, um, uh, with shelter right now, but, you know, 
supply chain, fiscal, monetary, uh, balance, you know, household balance sheets. Um, there's like, there, there are a lot of reasons why you can imagine it. Uh, oil, uh, as you, as you noted, um, a lot of reasons why you can see that if that trajectory is going down into 2022, doesn't, like you said, doesn't have to get down to the, to the, uh, uh, two, two and a half percent inflation target. If it's in, if we're talking about, you know, we, we start seeing five, four, three, everyone's going to stop talking about inflation. You're not going to see this. Uh, this and that's thing. going to be interesting because inflation's become such a political hot potato lately um, where the rest of the economy, I, this isn't a political thing. I'm just, I'm just citing data. Like the, the, the fourth quarter GDP is tracking at, you know, nine, 10%. We're, we're creating hundreds of thousands of jobs. The, the unemployment claims, that's a real number. You know, that's a check that goes out. It was like an all time low last week, but the, Biden administration is not getting any credit for that because for the first time in 35 years, we're experiencing a little inflation and um, people don't like it. <laughs> I, 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 have a, I have a quoted in, uh, in Politico today, said essentially that it's like, you know, essentially my, my message is stop talking about for you guys, stop talking, stop blank, saying that, the uh, you know, if you want to make this work, keep doing what you're doing, which is saying that, you know, the oil companies are gouging you and big businesses gouging you and, you know, like you're not going to defeat inflation that way, um, but you but you have this out uh, this really good economy out here to talk about. Like there are a lot of really good things to talk about in the economy. Yeah, talk about. Right? It. I mean, you've got you got low interest rates, you've got healthy balance sheets, you've got job creation, you've got wages increasing. Like there's a lot of you know workers are in the you know highest demand since uh, the 2000s. Yeah, this is like a pretty good, you have a pretty good story to. Uh, no, to I agree. I, I mean, I think about. this would be happening no matter who was in charge, but you're in charge. So try to take some credit for it. <laughs> yeah. That's what, it's absolutely what they should be talking about, but we'll see. I mean, every time they, and every time they go out and sort of overreact on this stuff on, you know, talking about inflation, yeah, I agree. It puts more it people in, talking about inflation. Right. And, and then you can't hide the fact that inflation is at, you know, six, 7%. Well, uh, linguistics aside, I mean, like, I mean, it is a, you know, that no one's happy with 6.7%, right? Uh, you know, but how you talk about it, mm-hmm. it matters, but no, no one's happy with that, uh, that number. It's not, it's not like, um, you know, even though uh, the, the market reaction was positive, I think because of, you know, that it wasn't, it didn't surprise overshoot. And uh, I think that's, I think that's really important where it's going to be really fascinating these next couple months to just see where, where, um, you know, where the, uh, where the data come in. Yeah. Uh, but, but also just, just how much the world has changed. So the last time we had an inflation print this high, uh, you know, was the, uh, the mid eighties where, um, 82, the right. 10 year was at 13.8%. So now the 10 years at 1.5%. <laughs> this is not Malay. This is not Malay's. Yeah, it's right. And, and right. Volcker isn't the Fed chair. Uh, yeah. it's, but we did. Yeah. I mean, we've <laughs> talked we talked about it at the last uh, last macro cast. But, you know, when Powell sort of channeled his inner Volcker a little bit in his uh, in his committee mm-hmm. and his testimony in front of Congress, it'll be next week's uh, Fed meeting is going to be really pivotal. And yep. uh, there's sort of a you know, the, the question is really how far is the Fed going to go in terms of uh, pivoting toward inflation fighting? And uh, this is, you know, the, the reality that we've seen over the last couple of weeks is that the market 
amplifies everything, right? And as soon as the the Fed still has, and maybe this is a, a legacy of tall Paul, way past through the decades, the Fed is very credible on yeah. fighting inflation. If if Fed Chair Powell and company came out and said we are going to battle inflation back, you would get you would you would have yeah. a disinflationary but- deflationary. Uh, I, 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 know, I know, but that, that, you're the communication guy. We, we, we've labeled it as fighting inflation. There's yeah, only I, one I, I, way we fight inflation. We raise rates. That's so, true. Well, well, yeah, well, the voter yeah, might want you to fight inflation. When he finds out how you do it, he's not going to be particularly happy about it. In normal in, in normal textbook times, that's what you 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 just you you raise rates. But, you know, they don't have to raise rates because they can they can. Uh, Taper. You're right. We, I guess we do asset purchases and eventually <laughs> unwind. You know, so yeah. they're like they're a lot. There are different things they can. Um, different but tools. Either way, the, you raise the the level of absolutely. Bar. Yeah. No. Absolutely. I, I, I want to write the next FOMC. So I think we could write it right now. Right. I mean, I it's right. going to be yeah. signs of you know. Here are the reasons why it can come off, and um, just like sprinkle in some continued vigilance, and uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> This is gonna be the. It's gonna be the. Um, it's gonna be the continued vigilance. Yeah. FOMC statement. Yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see. I mean, they've basically now conditioned the market to expect a doubling of the pace of the taper of quantitative easing, the, the taper pace that they announced last month, and uh, and so that's a pretty quick pirouette uh, into a, into a more hawkish posture. But you know the the this will be contextualized by the communications, contextualized by all of the uh, the updated projections and so forth. It is really going to be a pivotal meeting, and to the extent that they can get the balance right, you know clearly the market has an unstable equilibrium between inflation concerns and growth concerns, especially yeah. with Omicron <laughs> coming around and uh, and China slowing down, and you know you name it. There the yield curve is as flat as it's been all year. The growth yep. sensitive, you know, I, yep. I, we, we take the we take the Treasury yield curve very seriously. And it is telling you, you know, that the Fed is kind of in a challenging place in uh, battling inflation when growth is still, you know, a question mark uh, as as it is right now. So, uh, you know, it, at least into 2022, obviously, this quarter is strong. So it's a it's it's a delicate balance. And uh, and we'll see if they can if they can walk the line. You don't want to spook the markets. Uh, and because, yeah, you could tip very quickly into a disinflationary and find yourself doing what the Bank of England has done, which is reverse themselves again and again, again and oversteer and again, yeah. into these curves. <laughs> They've got a meeting next week, too. And yeah, they're being pilloried by market participants for their their, you know, uh, vacillations in communication. Yeah, I, I think they put themselves in a in a just a, in a terrible place um, over there. But yeah, I mean, how, you know, how you engineer these, you know, these sort of these big moves. They, they are, but by the way, it, you know, this sort of um, debate over whether monetary policy is, um, you know, is, is is you know hydraulics or communications and, expe- and expectations uh, are uh, Matt Iglesias in his uh, s- slow, boring Substack uh, newsletter today has a really good, um, super exciting <laughs> uh, <laughs> discussion of, of this very issue. He does a nice, he does a nice job with it, although you can pick at it, but he, he does a really nice job with it. But that, that's, but that communications function is, is just, is really, really important. And because you do it, set expectations for the market and you go back to the time when, you know, the, the fed was essentially on this, you know, multi-year quarter point with 17 straight quarter point increases that 
it, I felt at the time, but certainly in retrospect, seemed like just devoid of, uh, you know, analytical right. rigor, right? I mean, it was just sort of on cruise control of rate hikes. And uh, we were actually in a dynamic economy that should have had some dynamic response uh, from the FOMC at that time. So we'll see how they do it. It's going to be, it's a tough one. Let's, uh, let's, let's, uh, uh, let's get a break and come back and uh, take a little, a little look around the rest of the world. Uh, you're listening to the Macrocast. Every two weeks, HPS measures U.S. adults' feelings and expectations for the economy. The Civic Science Economic Sentiment Index, powered by HPS, accurately measures movements in overall national economic sentiment and provides a more sophisticated alternative to existing economic sentiment indices. To learn more, contact us through hamiltonplacestrategies.com. All right, back on the macrocast. Uh, we're going to come. We're going to come back and talk about. Uh, we want to get talk a little bit about Europe, and um, which we haven't done in a long time. But first, um, we actually have some happenings here in DC in a place where happenings don't happen very often. Um, we got some movement on. Uh, you know, the, uh, the defense authorization bill, the NDAA, it's usually considered a must pass uh, bill. We had a continuing resolution uh, to, you know, kick uh, spending into 2022. Um, and we have some unique uh, contortionist legislation to allow Democrats to raise the debt ceiling. Uh, that's, uh, that's happening. And it's happening by the, by um, um the the uh, bizarre method of Congress passing a bill to create a one-time mechanism uh, that would allow Democrats to uh, raise the debt ceiling uh, on a largely standalone measure, although they're putting some Medicare prote- healthcare protection um, uh, measures in there as well, but essentially to raise the debt ceiling with 51 votes um, and make it filibuster-proof but not having to use reconciliation. It's still crazy to me, the contortions that um, these guys will go through um, to avoid this vote. Because I'll what, say what it, voter and, cares about this. I, I'm just amazed how like worried. People I don't know. Are I'm going to go back. Yeah. I'm going to go do a little research this weekend um, and just take a look because it's my contention that no one has ever lost an election based on their debt ceiling vote ever <laughs> of either party anywhere. And I don't even know that there are, you can get, you can, there, people have cut ads about people who voted to increase spending and increase the debt. I, 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 I wanted to look to see if, if there are ads out there that have been cut mm. that specifically talk about and point to the debt ceiling. And so it's a paper tiger. And yet, these guys cower in the corner uh, anyway, but anyway, it's going to get done again. Another uh, taking uh, air out of the, uh, the, the balloon. If we, you know, looking a few months ago, looking at the end of the year, it looked like it was a pressure cooker. Now what it does do uh, getting these things out of the way, NDAA debt ceiling CR uh, is it does clear the decks for the next couple of weeks to have a little bit of uh, build back better drama. Uh, the majority Senate majority leader, uh, Chuck Schumer has his latest deadline is a Christmas deadline to pass uh, build back better. 
most people don't believe that's doable, but they are clearing the decks to have to give it the college try. And uh, so they're going to have time to do it. The Build Back Better bill is currently going through the so-called bird bath in the Senate, the BYRD bird bath, uh, Senator Byrd's uh, conditions for reconciliation that uh, spending that it deals with spending and budget items. Um, so checking for the germaneness of elements um, It's going through that process right now and will emerge maybe as early as today, but we're likely, um, you know, early next week. Uh, and th- so we'll get a look at what exactly the build back better reconciliation bill is, and they can take it to the floor. He intends to take it to the floor and start debate on it, uh, which would be, which will be extensive. We'll have some, Big amendments, big and small, and uh, and we'll see what happens. But uh, you know, at least you know, I'm I'm not ready to make a bet on whether they can get it done by Christmas. But uh, but we are going to see that for the next couple of weeks. Yeah, the inflation number has been playing into that, and obviously, uh, Minority Leader McConnell uh, came out and uh, and and was banging banging on about the today's number, but it's, it's not just the Republican side. Senator Manchin has uh, explicitly referenced the inflationary consequences. And, uh, and I think that that's something that, uh, that uh, treasury secretary Yellen has pushed back on uh, in particular saying that these measures are designed to get people back into the workforce, uh, particularly uh, women and, uh, and, you know, groups that are disproportionately affected. So uh, it's 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 a it's a push and pull. We'll, we'll see how it comes out. It, it does make you wonder, though, whether, uh, you know, if this does get pushed into 2022, um, you know, the longer this this thing sits out there, it seems like the less likely that it's going to happen at all. Um, and if you pull it's one of the reasons why I, I felt like, you know, if maybe it was too high risk for them. Uh, but to, uh, you know, use the debt ceiling as the, uh, you know, an impetus to, you know, like put it in the reconciliation bill. So you don't want to put it in the reconciliation, put it in the reconciliation bill and make it something like a must pass bill and really grind the negotiations on it. If you have uh, debt ceiling accounted for and you have um, the budget accounted for, for the most part, I'm not sure what the pressure is. Uh, yeah, there's nothing project. that has to be passed. Yeah, yeah. NDAA, um, you know, goes by the wayside, and then you're in an election year. And I just have to think if it gets passed, um, if it gets, pa- if it, you know, if, 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 if 2021 ends without Build Back Better passed, it, uh, the chances of it actually getting done, I think, would have to go, you know, pretty low. Huh, there's our drama, um, but the market. You know, did the market really care at this time around about that ceiling? Um, you know, or they just believe it's going to get done? No, there's. It really is a. You can see a minor kink in the, you know, the the T bills maturing around. You know, the debt ceiling, uh, the the sort of foggy deadline of when when the when, when that event horizon would be. But that's really all it's been, and that's all it's been in like the previous, uh, the previous episodes of this in, in recent memory. You can see a flicker of it in T bills markets, whereas that you know there's a little bit of higher yield on uh, on on the one that's in the spotlight and aligned with uh, with that particular event. But 
broader markets, we've seen this movie before. And, uh, and try to go into an investment committee meeting and say, I think we need to bring risk in the portfolio down because of you know, a debt ceiling, the potential for a debt ceiling accident, everyone would just boo you out of the room because it's, it's, it's assumed that an 11th hour fix will be found. So that's, you know, as, as we said before, that always, ironically, that means it's more likely that there is an accident, the complacency <laughs> in markets about it, but that's just the way it is. It is going to be, uh, it is going to be interesting because like we, you know, look, presumably what's going to happen I mean, you know, it's tough to make predictions, especially about the future, as Yogi Berra uh, once said. Um, but, you know, if the Senate flips to Republican control in 2023 and we've got another debt ceiling increase and there are Republican members who are not going to vote for the debt ceiling. And it's going to be just the position that these guys are going to be in, having set the precedent that the party in control has to provide the votes for the debt ceiling. I mean, if Democrats choose to go by what is now, uh, you have to call it the McConnell rule, that the party in, con- in control of the Senate must provide the votes, uh, it's going to be, I, I can't wait to hear what the uh, story is going to be about why these guys who wouldn't do it before uh, are going to have to do it. Uh, have to do it then and um it's well, why don't they raise it by one gajillion dollars this time that's a great question well if you're democrats if you, yeah, you, and you think you, you're going to lose it you want to make them do it in put, two years republicans yeah. in that same place yeah exactly so it's yeah. a the, the bane of my existence for the past <laughs> 20, 20 years and i don't think it's going away so i have lots of opportunities to talk about how stupid this thing is uh in the years to come <laughs> All right, let's take a break, come back and uh, and look at the uh, a little bit of the big blue marble. Um, you're listening to the Macro Guest. Markets Policy Partners provides sophisticated financial market analysis that is independent, accessible, and actionable for a broad audience. Learn more at marketspolicy.com or visit them on Twitter at Markets Policy. All right, we're back on the macrocast, uh, guys. We, you know, we haven't paid attention to Europe. I mean, usually, like when we go sleepy on Europe for a little bit, um, something crazy happens over there. And I don't think there's anything crazy right now, but I, w- I definitely wanted to take a you know take a look over there because we, we have both political and economic movement uh, uh, in Europe, and they seem to be behind us on things like you know uh, on COVID. Um, but John, how are how are you seeing the world's um, largest economy right now. Yeah, it's a really uh, important transition period for Europe. And there's just an enormous amount going on. Uh, the, the headliner, obviously, is the post-Merkel era in Germany and what that means for the continent, what that means to the European project as a whole. And uh, it's a pause and reflect kind of uh, uh, opportunity and looking back at what she was able to accomplish and what she maybe wasn't able to accomplish. And uh, so the, I guess the, the general consensus <laughs> depends on where you're, whether you're looking at it from France, whether you're looking at it from Italy or Germany. Uh, but I think that there's a you know, sort of broad global consensus that Angela Merkel was incredibly adept at being a uniter and moving the uh, European project through some very rocky times. The uh, global financial crisis, the the uh, the European financial crisis, Greek debt, all this Brexit. These are really challenging and wrenching moments, and uh, and she was a 
she was a, a stabilizing, calm presence at the center of Europe. And it was clear who was in charge. And that really meant something that was worth something uh, in, these, in those troubled times. The knock on her has always been that she was a local politician and that she didn't have a vision for a grander vision for Europe. There was no sense of where you know, the European project would be and inspiring and uh, that, that sort of thing. And uh, that just wasn't her game. And, uh, and so I think that you know, from, the, from the view of perhaps the view of France, there's uh, maybe a need for a little bit more grandiose uh, leadership. And uh, Macron is, uh, is styling himself as that successor, but with, you know, a, a much more significant sort of pan-European vision. But he's, he's, you know, facing some challenges at home. And, uh, and it's not really clear if he's going to be able to assume that mantle. He's relatively, you know, more, more controversial. Uh, our, our, our guy Draghi <laughs> is, the, uh, is another candidate. And I think, you know, we've talked before about the potential for the poles of power in Europe to be shifting south. And, uh, and certainly with the European Central Bank president, Christine Lagarde, having a very sort of southerly friendly, friendly kind of uh, uh, tenure at the, uh, at the European Central Bank so far, and her sensibilities are quite clear on that. We'll talk a little bit more about the ECB. That may play very well into a Draghi uh, sort of leadership, which is, tends to be more about freeing up sort of those fiscal constraints that Angela Merkel and the Northern Europeans have put uh, on the, uh, on the uh, block and the, the, the movements toward unity, um, fiscal unity. We've seen some of those spring up around the pandemic. It's a, but it's at a time when, you know, certainly there's real geopolitical pressure as well, uh, whether it's Nord Stream 2 uh, and, or whether it's the, the situation uh, with, with Ukraine and Russia, the U.S. trying to get Europe on side on its campaign to counter China on uh, tech and a variety of different fronts. It's a it's a very it's a very pivotal moment, and uh, at a time when you know leadership is in flux. The one thing that does seem to be pretty certain is that the European Central Bank is about as the dovish most dovish central bank uh, out there in the world these days. If, uh, if, if, you're, if you're still on team transitory, <laughs> as we're kind of, you know, maybe we're a transitory 2.0, <laughs> not, not fleeting, but more like, uh, you know, not permanent. Uh, that is, you can, you can look to the ECB to find some fellow travelers in that camp. Uh, they're, still, they're still transitory. Uh, sure. And it's, it's a, we're going to see them meeting next week. They're expected, they've got their uh, decision coming up on the uh, part of their quantitative easing program that's specifically pandemic related. That's probably going to run off next March, uh, but it's going to be cushioned with perhaps a temporary or at least some kind of boost to the regular underlying maintenance dose, so to speak, of quantitative easing slash asset purchases that they're engaged in. Uh, it's a it's it's a fascinating time for Europe, um, and uh, but they do have you know they do have unity and and uh, purpose on a variety of different fronts, and one being this newly announced global gateway initiative, which is you know their approach, their answer to the G seven call that the Biden led through G seven call to get out there and offer an alternative to China's Belt and Road Initiative, uh, which has been the you know global. Uh, the Chinese, the Beijing-backed uh, global infrastructure campaign. And uh, the announcement uh, from the EU was uh, 300 billion euros, which is, not, which, is, which is not chicken feed. And their ability to actually 
to, to actually push forward some of these projects uh, with uh, sustainability and green kind of goals. Uh, that's, you know, whether they're able to execute on it is, is, is still a question. But if you look at infrastructure, uh, you know, the Europeans do infrastructure in a way that maybe we aren't able to. So, uh, so I think that there's really something there. Yeah, sure. Seems like it. I mean, they, they've, um, uh, you know, I mean, that level of cooperation is somehow, it's somehow it's easier for them. I, I do agree with you on the, uh, on the, the politics are just fascinating. You know, they, uh, I mean, the, you don't get, um, you know, we, we have these, you know, every four years or every eight years, you know, where, um, you know, it's, it's very clear where the center of power is and where it's changing. That's with the, you know, the, the White House changes uh, control and it's fairly easy to see. It's murky in Europe, um, you know, because uh, you have, de- you know, even with the EC um, and the EU presidency, you have decentralized, so a lot of decentralized power. And, uh, and you know, I, I, there are no great parallels. It'd be like, you know, wondering, well, it, like if, it, you know, if being governor of California had an outsized, uh, you know, impact on the policy of the United States, it would be really fascinating, right. you know, <laughs> yeah, but that's not the case at all. And it's not like California has seats on the central bank or whatever, right. You know, you know I mean, it's not, it's just a very different kind of um, uh, system. So you look at things like, you know, I mean, the, the, after 16 years, right. The, 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 um, uh, the Merkel uh, chancellorship, um, you know, p- potential change in, uh, you know, uh, you know, Macron possibly in trouble in, in, um, in France. Uh, we used to think about whatever happened in, in the UK and we don't so much anymore, but those were the kinds of things you have to kind of, you know, uh, uh, you know, figure out where the, you know, where the power center is. And it's definitely not obvious that it's, I mean, Germany because of its size and, uh, and importance, but it's not clear that Schultz does that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, they have, you know, you're right. That, so, uh, so ECB has been, been particularly dovish. One of the, the, the thing I think about with Europe though, is, um, that, you know, they have, uh, they have structural issues that make it harder to really generate strong inflation. Um, you know, and they have not been running as hot as we have, have they? I mean, have you looked at the, the most recent numbers? Not as hot, but Germany's inflation was just uh, just came in this morning, and it was you know the highest in thirty years. So it's it's lower than ours, but I think it's still like a, the headline number is still like five percent. Yeah. and in normal times, they're you know they have a harder time generating inflation. Oh, absolutely, yeah. They've got a disinflationary uh, morass that looks kind of closer to Japan than ours. Yeah. So interesting policy choices for them ahead and just seeing how that, uh, on how, how that plays out. Um, but th- thanks for taking us through it, John. Guys, what do we have next week? I'm, I'm actually, I'm, I'm just gonna be listening next week. I'm, 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 uh, I'm going to be off on Friday, uh, with some family things, but, uh, wh- what do we have and what do we have on the week? So as we mentioned earlier, we have that big FOMC meeting, uh, yeah. where you, you've already uh, laid out exactly what's going to happen. Uh, but we also have no need the, to tune in uh, next week. You just you got <laughs> you tomorrow's news today. Yeah, exactly. We'll just send it to the Wall Street Journal now and, and be done with it. Uh, but then the ECB and the Bank of England also have uh, uh, important meetings, especially the Bank of England, which, as we mentioned, have been a little wishy-washy lately. Uh, and then we also have uh, the central banks in Japan and Mexico and probably most interesting, Turkey, which has been a... Um, a bit of a disaster lately. <laughs> so we'll disorderly. see. Disorderly. 
Yeah, it is dismal. The The currency is, is just uh, bleeding out. That's what happens when the um, <clears throat> president takes over a central bank. Uh, well, we're going to keep, we'll keep an eye on all of that. And I'll be uh, interested in y'all's thoughts uh, on that when I listen to the podcast um, uh, next Saturday, probably. Yep. And then uh, we're going to film our, um, our year end kind of outlooks for the new year, which is always a fun one to do. Oh, can't wait. Um, all right, guys. Have a great weekend. Uh, good, get good CPI day. Have a great weekend. And uh, we'll, uh, I'll, I'll be listening to you next week. Thank you for listening to the HPS Macrocast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and share.